Welcome to TalkErie.com's Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast. Every day, we tackle the biggest issues that the Erie, PA region faces. Stay informed and involved as we advance the narrative of Erie. Now, here's Joel Natale. I think this is a first-time author that we have on it right here. It's Ashley Walter. She's the CEO of Onyx. And she has her book, Leading with Grit and Grace. And Ashley, welcome back to the show. Appreciate you being on. Thanks so much for having me. All righty. So tell us a little bit about, again, remind us of your position at at your firm. It's a family firm uh, manufacturing here in Erie. uh, and, uh, And really, it's the context for the book, right? That's correct. So in 2013, my father-in-law asked me to take the helm and lead the company, and uh, we had to go through a bit of a turnaround. And uh, so I, now that the turnaround is complete, and we're a 100% employee-owned company, and we're in the middle of a worldwide pandemic, mm. turns out I had a little extra time to write a book. So I thought maybe I'd write a playbook on what we did to turn the company around in hopes that it might help others that are trying to manage this crisis today. I, I am always sparked by whenever I hear the word grit and resiliency because that seems to be uh, a determinant of whether someone's going to make it or not. And so seeing it in the title, Leading with Grit and Grace, and uh, it, in the synopsis it says grit and grace is about the fall and rise of a small company in Erie, PA. So – Let's uh, let's kind of take you through the narrative. I would imagine that the book talks about like a history of your firm, right? Um, it does. And so for grit, uh, what that means to me is determination, persistence, and resilience. And I grew up in a multi-generational manufacturing family, so that was something that was just kind of ingrained in us. Um, and it turned out to be a really good attribute to have as you start as we started leading that turnaround of a company. Um, you know, it, that turnaround had to be successful, not only for my immediate family, but for the 50 uh, employees' families that we employ here. Absolutely. And uh, and again, there are business cycles that you have to deal with, but then there's also this kind of this generational change. And uh, this is where a lot of people get it wrong, right? Uh, and again, we when we talk to you about uh, the employee owned the ESOP that you that you underwent with the help of the folks down uh, down in Harrisburg and so on. Uh, that was that was a pretty important piece. But uh, the the most important piece w- what were you guys here in Erie and and getting and getting everybody um, uh, of the of on the same page to make this happen. Can you tell us a b- little bit about your story and, and what are some of the themes that rise out of the book regarding? that fall and then that turnaround? Yeah, so definitely a generational difference. I think you nailed it right on the head. So back in the industrial revolution, we became very command and control from a management style in manufacturing. And I would argue that today that style isn't as effective because technology is changing so fast that there's no way that one leader can keep up and direct everyone. So really what we're doing here is a more democratic approach where we're bringing the team together. We're saying, here's the issue at hand. Uh, give me your thoughts on how we can solve it. Um, will, so we align? Just to, just to cut you off there for a second, though. So does that necessarily mean that generally uh, to go from a old school manager style to this new uh, flatter style of management, it almost takes 
changing the people in the chairs, doesn't it? Sometimes it does, but you know, overall, we've still got people that have been here. Uh, I can't say since day one of the company, but you know, 35 years worth of experience okay. too. So it, I guess what it takes is a willingness to change. Yeah, that 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 ability to kind of be flexible. Um, the uh, you 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 talk about in in the notes here that the family-owned company was in uh, in dismay, and you had to transform it. Use some lean principles, common sense, problem solving, and a change in culture being most important. Let's go through all of this. When you say it was in dismay, are we talking about on a on a sheer market share uh, basis or just getting the job done. Talk about that. Yeah. So we were doing fine with the clients. I'm not even sure most of them knew that we were having an internal struggle or that, you know, the finances were kind of going in the wrong direction. Um, we, you know, remained uh, out there in the workplace servicing the clients. What we weren't doing well was working together as a team. So the previous leader had siloed everyone yeah. and he didn't want other departments to know what the other departments were doing. Um, here now, every Friday, we have a meeting and we tell everything that's going on within the company. So everybody's aware of kind of what's coming down the pipeline or what's expected. What's the, um, what's the, when you do an approach to problem solving, I, okay, just a case in point. Again, I, I'm trying to learn from you. But like sometimes the sales, the salesperson, for example, is you know the, the maybe the director of sales would be like, uh, well, I can't do it that way. I got to do it this way because of X, Y, Z clients or whatever. But you have the you know the, maybe you have the plant manager or you have uh, you know somebody in design saying, well, no, it really needs to be done this way. How do how do you work through all that stuff? I mean, because naturally there are silos built in. For sure. So a, a couple of things. One is I always set a wildly important goal or what I call a wig for the organization for the year. And then I don't actually write the roadmap for the leaders of their departments. I go to them and I say, what battle can you fight to help us win the war? Wow. And then they roll that into their department. So I'm sure you're, you've seen before where the leader would pick goals for everyone in the organization and kind of try to write that roadmap. I just say, here's the high level goal, but I'm not the one that can write the roadmap because I'm not the one that's doing the work. I'm not the one closest to it. Yeah, it's like, what <laughs> what can you do to to get me closer to this to this goal? And uh, and um, you, you talk also about this change in culture. And so, what about those folks that have been around 35 years? They they've known one way of doing things. They know where. Um, you know, you know where to get the tools in the tool in the tool room. Where the, where um, you know, you know how to uh, jiggle the handle on the uh, pop machine so that you know. What I mean, like, there's a lot of yeah. institutional knowledge in a right. in somebody tribal that's been knowledge. working around. You know. Yeah. So we definitely have some tribal knowledge here. I would say um, we're more open to sharing now that the culture is just more open to sharing in general. Um, but those guys that have been here for 35 years, they also got to be in under the management of a family style leadership. Then they had to endure the management of a command and control. And we're back to that more democratic. So they've kind of come full circle. That makes a lot of sense. I, I'm hearing you use terms like, you know, tribal knowledge and, 
and you know the wigs and stuff. Where where did you learn all this stuff? I read a lot. (laughs) (laughs) My background is uh, chemical engineering. So I say, you know, today I don't do anything chemical engineering wise at all, but I solve a whole lot of problems all day long. So I'm really thankful for my engineering degree and that it taught me how to solve pretty much any problem. I can find a process and work my way through it. But from the business management side, I've never been, uh, you know, I've never pursued an MBA or anything. So just I had to learn that by being self-taught. So uh, let's 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 talk about that a second. What what would you suggest for that? Uh, you know, kind of you know, family owner. I mean, they could be they could have a plumber shop with a couple plumbers, or they could they could have their own tool and die shop, or what have you, plastics company. Uh, where would you? Where would you send them? What seminars or what what books would you send them to in addition to Leading with Grit and Grace, right? Yeah, so one of my favorites is called Start With Why from Simon Sinek. Yeah. And it get, it just starts you at the very beginning. You have to figure out your why so that you can figure out your direction. Yeah, um, yeah. he's an impressive uh, speaker too. I've seen Simon a few times. Yeah, so he's he's a lot of fun. He's got a lot of energy. <laughs> Another one is Two Second Lean by Paul Akers. So once we figured out our, our why and where we're headed, then we really use lean principles to change um, the culture. Can you so, identify, uh, define that for me? Because I'm not sure I totally understand. I, I know just in time or whatever, but what does lean mean to you? So for us, we started out with value stream mapping. And what that did was it pulled all the teams in one process together. Um, So we could talk about every step in the process. So the production floor could understand what the people in the office had to do to be able to process the order to get it onto the floor. And then the people from the office understood what production did before the paperwork came back to them for final invoicing. So we could really walk through every step of a process. Um, so you're, you're do, what you're doing is you're walking through everybody through what value they're bringing to the process and they're seeing the stream uh, kind of uh, in real time, if you will. Correct. And they're also getting to voice their frustration over any part of the process that's causing them extra work or extra angst, mm-hmm. right? And if it's something that we can change in the office that makes the production floor easier, we didn't know that we were causing them an issue. We don't do it on purpose, you know? Right. <laughs> we call that uh, we call that around the radio station. Wait and then hurry up, right, Shane? I, I'm always doing that to Shaney. Wait then hurry up. It's like get get the Zoom call out immediately. Oh well, this is this is really helpful stuff. Is is there any? Uh, I mean, I mean, you're talking about leadership here. Do you like some of the leadership uh, TED talks, or uh, do you go to any conferences or so on? Yeah, so I definitely love the TED Talks. They're really interesting ideas that you haven't heard of before. Um, one of the uh, programs that I found the most useful was from Case Western Reserve University. They have coaching for intentional development. And uh, I actually used that program to replace our annual performance review. I found that it was better for us to coach in real time than it was for us to take a rear view look what we've done in the in the year gone by do you do you think that uh old school men i mean again you are a heavy manufacturing firm you know what you're making are those furnaces right i mean do you are a lot of people you know going this way with this kind of 
you know, 21st century approach to management and leadership uh, or and give your best shot in, in convincing them that this is a great way to go? Yeah, so I would say a lot of people aren't probably down that path yet. I hope that my book will change that, you know, just a simple playbook on how you can make the change and do think the change is necessary. You know, we have a whole new workforce that's been used to getting feedback pretty consistently. I think they're not going to wait one year for you to provide feedback as their leader. They're going to be asking for it. Um, I think if we're going to keep the young, younger generations in the workforce, we're going to have to be more flexible. We're going to have to make changes that can't always be command and control. And honestly, for the leaders at the top, I mean, you don't want to have to solve and think of every problem. You want the people in underneath uh, to be able to, to think through a process, to problem solve on their own, and to make things better. I think you're bringing up kind of a, a subject that probably really needs to be vetted out insofar as that you've heard the narrative of the of the aging baby boomer complaining about the millennial that you know does, doesn't have the grit doesn't have the resiliency to to work as hard as I've worked as I built this company yada 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 uh, meanwhile there's there there's probably some learning that needs to be done for for that uh, for that uh, aging manager or that aging uh, uh, sole proprietor, right? Yeah. So I think just always being willing to learn. I, I always say I'm I'm a lifelong learner. I want to learn more. I want to hear the new things that everybody's doing. But once again, it's a willingness to want to make that change, to want to learn something new. Let, let's uh, let's bring this plane in for a landing here. We got about three minutes, and I want to ask about the pandemic. And uh, and using, you know, what is the there's a political statement that says never let a crisis go to waste. Right. And so uh, are there is this a moment that uh, leaders, uh, whether it's a manufacturing company or service company or even nonprofits can really kind of double down and get their skill set up on their leadership and also maybe have better outcomes for their employees and their clients? Yeah, I definitely think you can be paralyzed with fear of change or you can just embrace it. I mean, we, we're we not going to go back to the way that we were. There's so many, there's too many things that have changed in the last year and now we're used to them, right? For instance, the use of technology in Zoom. Um, and on March 9th of 2020, my staff was not ready to go work from home. We took the week prior to the shutdown to make sure that everybody had technology in their hands, thinking that this was gonna come, not knowing it was only gonna be a week away, right? So remote work was not a thing for most manufacturers. I would say most of us didn't know how to use Microsoft Teams, but we figured it out pretty quick. We also got ourselves a Zoom account. <laughs> <laughs> wow, everybody I mean, did, so right? I didn't have Everybody one. did, and we were all in the same boat together. You know, and no more eating out three times a day. You you had to figure out how to cook at home, right? Sure. So, so many things changed for us so quickly. It, you could embrace it or you could fuss about it. So um, do you think that there's probably some strong uh, courses of action? So, it's, so instead of just kind of waiting to see how it all shakes out, like, I mean, people should really be planning for a post-pandemic reality. Absolutely. So we know that we're not going to get to see as many people in person for some time to come. 
right? So we're already talking about how do you sell and market in a no contact environment? How do you continue to have a relationship with your customers? How do you make sure that their customer experience remains as good or better than when you could see them in person? And it just takes them thinking outside the box. Yeah, it, it really, really does. And it's not and it's not the cheapest date either. I mean, honestly, we, uh, it, uh, we, I mean, for example, we still have Christmas gifts that we got to get out because uh, we got jammed up at the end of the year and, uh, and you know, wanted to wait until it was kind of safer to kind of do a, 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 an elbow pump and, uh, and give a gift. But um, I mean, there's, I mean, the gifts are there. I, it's, it's so interesting. And I, and I, uh, I applaud you, Ashley, for going this route to kind of really encapsulating what you've learned through this journey. And um, it, again, what would you say is your biggest takeaway? What is, uh, you know, what is the the, the great nugget that uh, you want to share? So I think our biggest takeaway through all of this is just to find a way to make things better. Yeah, find a way to make things better. Thanks so much. Ashley Walters, author of Leading with Grit and Grace uh, on Amazon? On Amazon. All right. Easy enough. Again, Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-I-G-H, Walters, and uh, Leading with Grit and Grace is the book. We're glad to have with us here James McQuiston. He is the author of the Oak Island books, books with the titles of uh, Oak Island and the Mayflower, Oak Island 1632, Oak Island Endgame, Oak Island Missing Links, Oak Island the Novel, Oak Island Nights. You are quite a prolific author, James. Well, uh, thanks for having me here. Uh, I have to say that I never intended to write any book, and I certainly would, in retrospect, wish all the books were together in one, but it was just funny the way it happened. Uh, first, I'll just give you a background in Oak Island. It's an island off the coast of Nova Scotia, and the story is that in 1795, three young men uh, found a depression there, and they dug down 30 feet and were finding some interesting items, so they uh, talked to some rich men that lived nearby and a few years later they brought in what at the time was modern equipment and they did some drilling and digging and they got down uh, 90 feet and why they knew they were in something unique was that the sidewalls were still hard but what they were digging out was softer soil so they knew it had been previously dug out so uh, a lot of ideas or legends, whatever you want to call them, began about what it might be. Uh, one of the things was Captain Kidd's treasure. Another was uh, Sir Francis Bacon's manuscripts or Shakespeare manuscripts. Wow. Uh, it, it's gone to the extreme of the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy, <laughs> things like that, you know. Wow. But I don't get into that fantastical area. I'm always looking for a logical uh, pragmatic reason why something would happen. So uh, I'm a uh, fellow with the Society of Antiquaries in Scotland, and I'm also related to the current Knight Baronet of Nova Scotia. And uh, so I was, I didn't watch the first two years of The Curse of Oak Island. It's uh, the number one show on history when it's on. And I didn't watch the first couple years, but in the third year I was watching it and it just struck me 
uh, Kirsten, or I mean, Oak Island, Nova Scotia, and Premier Knight Baronet of Nova Scotia. I wondered if they had ever heard of it. So I contacted them, hoping really that they would give me information. And it turned out that they wanted information. Wow. Uh, they set up an hour long meeting, Skype meeting, and uh, they asked a number of questions and I started writing them emails. So after a few months, I'd written them dozens and dozens of very long emails because I'd been writing for years on Scottish history and doing research. So uh, at one point they said, you know, you need to write a book because all of this is just going to get lost in our emails. So I wrote my first book, Oak Island Missing Links, which is kind of a general, uh, it, it addresses some general legends. It, then they had me come up there in 2017 and I, they had me in the war room and they filmed me for a couple hours. And, but in the meantime, I was continuing my research. So I had a whole new batch of information to dump on them when I got there. And uh, so that was a couple hour long meeting and I got to uh, study at uh, a, a college that has some serious old history books on Scotland and Nova Scotia with Doug Carroll, who's one of the main historians. And so, and I got a nice tour of the island. In fact, I was given the golf cart and told I could go over wherever I wanted to go. So it was pretty cool. But things were pretty loose. That was in 2017. Things were pretty loose. Uh, I was the last person to present in the war room because they basically tore it down right after I got done, built a new one up around a corner that was stronger and away from the tourists. So uh, again, they asked a lot of questions and I began sending them more emails and pretty soon they said, you know, you need to write another book because now you got a specific idea of who it is and what year it was, 1632. And I did, and they had me come up again in 2018. And that year they took me up to uh, this little town called New Ross that has a kind of a mysterious foundation and well up there that's been tied into the Oak Island legend for years. And uh, so, uh, I helped them with identifying a 1671 knighthood medallion that was found there. Hmm. And it was quite an operation. We had to convince the gentleman that found it to bring it to the war room. And so uh, when I left that year, I knew I had to write Oak Island Knights because now I had, I had found what I thought the, the treasure was, which was a stolen treasure from Scotland. I knew the guys involved. I knew why they would have left it there. And I knew almost most importantly, why they never came back and got it. Because that was the big question. Why would anybody bury something there? Right. Never come back and get it. Can I pause you a second here? James McQuiston is with us here uh, on our Erie Authors show. Uh, and James, you're, you're based in Northeast. Um, the, the, the kind of the quintessential, um, uh, what, what would you call it, hypothesis here is that you're claiming that there may be a chance that the Scots found or discovered America via Nova Scotia long before Christopher Columbus discovered well, that, America. They, uh, the Mayflower came over in 1620 and they needed a buffer between the French in Quebec and the pilgrims in Massachusetts. So they gave Nova Scotia to this man, his name was William Alexander, they gave it to him with the understanding that he would settle Scots there that would act as a buffer so the French couldn't come down and attack right. the England. But and, we're, we're saying before 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue, 
it's very possible that uh, that Scottish sailors came to Oak Island, right? Oh, it's possible that a number of people did, but that's not my theory. My okay. theory in 1621. Gotcha. Finally, they sent a uh, they sent a few ships over there exploring, but they sent a solid group of people there in 1629. And I believe that this treasure, the reason why I believe the treasure is involved is because the man who stole it was under indictment for two years. And then all of a sudden he was given a total pardon, made a full partner with the man who was given Nova Scotia and made a knight baronet of Nova Scotia. And he went over there and he signed witnesses to deeds and a lot of, you know, he was intimately involved with it. So why would somebody who was under indictment for stealing this massive treasure all of a sudden become the best buddy of the man that got (laughs) right when it in 1632 they were ousted in a somewhat friendly way by the french uh, because of a treaty between france and england and i believe that what they had to leave in april and you can't sail the north atlantic in april i've got a lot of information in my books that proves that sure and i believe that they took refuge in mahone bay which is the the bay that goes furthest back into the landmass, and Oak Island is at the back of that bay, and you can hide back there from a storm. And there's a lot of other reasons I believe that too, but that's the principal reason. And uh, I think they lost the ship there. In fact, I'm almost positive at this point they did. And so they had to bury some things they didn't want to take back with them, like the treasure, but but also things they just couldn't take back with them because they lost an entire ship. And the ship was found there in the 1970s. I met the captain that dove on it. He found uh, items on it that pertain to my theory. And so um, they, I believe they left it there. Well, once they left, the French took over, so they couldn't go back and dig it up with French hovering over them. And when they got back, that's when the whole situation with Oliver Cromwell and the War of the Three Kingdoms started. And they were tight with the king, so they were enemies of Oliver Cromwell as well. And so their whole family just uh, disintegrated basically. Although some of them, the legend is that they went back to Nova Scotia and lived there till uh, 1654 when Cromwell's men came over chasing them down. And so it gets a little complicated, but it's a really cool story. And my latest book, I'm actually writing a seventh book right now. Wow. Oak Island and New Ross. And I, found four see every book i write i think it's the best one i ever wrote and i think i'm <laughs> another one and then all of a sudden this stuff gets dumped on my lap so four major items got dumped on my lap that said you need to write at least this last book so i've got it all written but it's in proofreading stage which takes a long time uh, uh because my two proofreaders my wife beth and my cousin pat gustason are merciless <laughs> which, <laughs> they make the book so much better than it would have been if they weren't. So would you call yourself an accidental author? Uh, well, in a way, I've always enjoyed writing, and I wrote my first book back in 2002. Okay. Uh, in the case of Oak Island, yes, absolutely, because I did not intend ever to write one book about it. But I'm so fascinated by the story. They call it islanditis. When you get addicted to it, you have islanditis, and there is no cure. So... Uh, <laughs> In my case, it's writing books and, and researching. And I've, you know, I've sold a lot of them. I have a, a fan base out there. I've done a, I've done a lot of talks, but last year with the COVID, I lot, you know, I had to cancel a lot of them. But 
yeah. hopefully this year I'm going to be able to to do some more. But uh, and one thing I found is that if if somebody's been to a talk and bought two or three of my books, they come to the next one and they want every book you know that I've got out by then uh, because they want to keep up on. It's kind of like I should have just called it the Oak Island Journal right in the beginning and just put one out a year. Uh, but now I'm up to seven, and every one of them can stand on their own. But the story gets more detailed, obviously, over the years it has. But the people up there are great. I've been up there three times on their ticket. They pay for our flights, the rooms, the rental, the food, whole ball of wax. And I've been in five war room meetings now. And uh, the, the the people are just as nice as could be. I mean, and if you what, what you you say you haven't watched the show, but no, but now I'm super intrigued. James McQuiston, he's the author of the Oak Island books and, of course, The Curse of Oak Island, big show on the History Channel. And, and James, uh, you've been learning from them, and they've been learning from you, the producers there. So maybe we can kind of zoom in, because uh, you're writing a book right now. But what, what is the status of Oak Island right now? I mean, is there an archaeological dig going on? Or you know, when you say the war room, what does that mean and what's happening there? Yeah, that, that's a good idea to switch because my books and my and my uh, theory is a little bit complex, but all the books are available on Amazon. So you just pick out any one of them and start with it. But the war room is, it was uh, a work shed and they build a new uh, duplicate of it now, but uh, they have a round table in there literally with chairs around it and theorists will come in and talk or if they've got carbon dating from items they found, or if they've got an expert on the big screen, they will sit in there and listen to them. So I've been in five of those meetings so far. Uh, the status right now, it's, there's been people hunting for 225 years. There were several people that spent 50 years there. Wow. Spent their entire life. A lot of people spent their entire fortune there and had to leave. Uh, this sounds so much like the Knights Templar in National Treasure and all this stuff, you know? <laughs> And that's one of the theories is the Knights Templar. It's not mine, but that's one of them. But uh, so in 2007, there were two older gentlemen that were running the show, and one of them wanted out. He just was getting kind of old and wanted out. So he put his half of the island up for sale. And these two brothers from Michigan, uh, Marty and Rick Lagina, and their partner, Craig Tester, bought it. And so they made a, a, an arrangement with the other old gentleman, Dan Blankenship, that they would, you know, he would tell them what he knew and they would do the work. So they brought in super heavy equipment, uh, gigantic caissons, uh, like 60 inches around. And, and uh, they did dynamite drilling where they put a little dynamite charge every 10 feet. And then they set it off at night when people don't generally have their cell phones on or whatever. And it'll read if there's, uh, pockets, empty pockets underground or pockets of loose dirt or whatever. What's interesting is they've brought up, they haven't brought up a treasure, but they've brought up a lot of things that don't make any sense being down so low. For instance, they brought up a couple human bones. Mm -hmm. And on the show, they've only talked about two human bones, but the truth is that they've pulled up six human bones. They've got them DNA'd and carbon dated. And they've pulled up uh, uh, some a little bit of gold chain, a piece of parchment, some book binding, uh, pieces of pottery, and uh, one that I'd like to hear was a piece of axe cut wood that dated as old as uh, 
1626, which is right before my theory of 1632. And uh, actually the leather that they just recently brought up, they brought up two good sized chunks of leather and it dated, it would have dated into my time slot too. A lot of items do one way or the other. James, just a second again, and and I'm, I apologize if it sounds dumb, but um, you know, this is not that long ago. When you consider about, you know, the kinds of antiquities that we have, the Dead Sea Scrolls and and some of the other things, uh, you know, the 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 Alexandria Library, and, and again, I'm I'm sure I'm talking way outside my knowledge base, but you know what I mean. We do have ancient books that predate this. Why why wouldn't there be some kind of a of a history somewhere of, well, that- of voyages and things like that? It's a great question, and that I'm about the only person that's pursuing that. All of interesting. I don't talk much at all about what's going on on the island. I talk about uh, any kind of document, letter, land deed. Uh, you know, I back all of my stuff up. Number one with documents. Number two with logic, and number three with any science that's available. There's. I don't have a letter that says yes. I went there and I dug a hole and put all this stuff in it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, and X marks the spot. Right. <laughs> Oh, they know something took place just because of the items they found. They call it at depth, which means like over 100 foot down. They know that something took place uh, because why else would that, why else would those items be down there? And they find a lot of surface finds. Uh, They have a a real high level uh, metal detector who comes on the island for a few months at a time. And he's found a lot of items just down a little ways, old tools. Uh, some jewels, a, few, a couple of jewels. So, but, but the reason why there's a, a problem with finding it, oh, number one, part of it at least may have already been found by sure. past people who didn't want to pay the tax man. But also, uh, there's a lot of water seepage when they get down that deep. So they have to contend with that. And uh, there, some people think that there are flood tunnels that were built that that flood it, but there you can get geologists on either side of that. Some will say, oh, there absolutely has to be flood tunnels. The other ones will say, no, there's no way it's flood tunnels. It's just national or natural caverns underneath the bedrock that are causing all that. So, and in I think it was 1863 when they were working on it, they heard three big booms and it collapsed. So now they think the general thought is that it fell down into a cavern and it made a debris field down there. So when they're drilling, they may be hitting only one little part of that debris field. But when they bring up the items, they may bring up a couple of bones or they may bring up some. So, so you're thinking that the treasure ship was uh, either exploded or scuttled in what you call this money pit where, where they're no, doing the digs. The They lost, in my theory, they lost the ship offshore okay. and what they could onshore because they had a few ships i think they probably had four but i know they absolutely had two because one of the records says on their vessels not on their vessel so that means they had to have had two uh and then i think they just they didn't want to take it back they had to spirit it out of scotland in the first place so nobody knew they had the treasure and so they didn't want to take it back but the three boys that found it in the beginning, uh, one of their ancestors or one of their descendants said that they each got a chest full of stuff out of it. Okay. Uh, the next group that came in, uh, the this is really interesting, but the uh, one of the families involved was one of the 
initial investors in the National Bank of Nova Scotia, which became Scotia Bank, and uh, financier and director. And at the turn of the 1900s, the all the underwriters were uh, financial institutions except one guy, and that was the guy that owned what's called the Nolan Cross lots on Oak Island. So he had to be incredibly wealthy to keep up with. Sure. So he, so that family may have found some of it, but again, it, it was common even in the gold rush days uh, for the people to keep their treasure secret and to get it home somehow in their shoes or something and bury it in their backyard because they didn't want to pay the tax man. So makes, makes a lot of sense. All right, I, I got, I've got to bring this plane in for landing. We're about a minute and a half left before the bottom of the hour. Here, we're talking to James McQuiston. He's the author of the Oak Island books. Uh, if somebody really wants to go deep, uh, the idea is to start with uh, the, your your uh, your book, uh, Oak Island Missing Links, and go from there. Right? But yeah, you could do that, or you could jump right to Oak Island Nights, which gives my most fullest theory. Everything after Oak Island Nights is icing and decorations on the cake. And Oak you're going to be, uh, you're writing another book right now. Is this kind of a lifelong uh, quest for you? Is this going to kind of keep you busy till, um, till you're done? Since 2016, it seems like that's what it's appeared to be, but I didn't plan it that way. But I want to tell you, I've had so much fun, and uh, especially in 2020, it gave me something to do all year long <laughs> sure. when... I was stuck inside, but uh, in fact, I published three of my books just in 2020, wow. one in January and then one about March or April and then one in November. But anyway, it's, it's very fun for me. They're incredible people. I've gotten three free vacations up to Nova Scotia. Uh, I've met people all over the world because of this, and I've got help from museums, the British Museum. So it's just been a really wonderful experience. And uh, yeah, I would say probably any, you could grab any book, but if you wanted to get the gist of the theory uh, most succinctly, I'd probably start with Oak Island Nights. And, but, and as far as the, the, the TV series on history, are they still producing uh, new shows or what, what do you know about that? They film in the summer, well, from about May to how, however late they can, which is usually October. Yeah. And then they start showing it in November. And I know they're on to some good things this year. Uh, some of the stuff I know only because the mic was on Dr. Fru, good to see you, sir. Thank you. All righty. Of course, uh, you're well known as as a um, as a professor at Gannon, and uh, you still teaching any classes at school? Or no, I'm not teaching any more classes. Yeah, hardly anybody's teaching classes. It's all virtual now. <laughs> that, that, that's true. <laughs> that's true. But uh, again, uh, you know, you're you're. Uh, your work on the water precedes you, and uh, we're just so glad to have you on here. So talk about the impetus for writing this book. Well, uh, I, I had finished writing a book, and, you know, I tell a story in the front part of the book about how my wife and I were sitting at the uh, peninsula waiting for the hunter's moon to come up, hoping not to get arrested by the cops. <laughs> Because, of course, we were sitting after dark in a parking lot waiting for the moonrise over the city. And uh, we were chatting, and uh, she said, she sort of has been with me a long time, what are you thinking about writing next? Mm. And uh, that, that's sort of the, the birth. The birth of the book was there in the car. Uh, Marianne, my wife, actually named the book and uh, has been the inspiration for a lot of the internal stories. I'm interested in knowing what it means to be an accidental paradise. Well, 
there are so many times and so many opportunities for that thing to get away from us for a variety of different reasons that it's sort of a fortunate accident that it's still sitting there and and it's it's become a state park and a in a in a, in a site that maybe four million people go to every year it's paradise in my view and it's a it's a total accident that we got to have it there we want to welcome also Jerry Scripsack. Uh, Jerry's been on the show before. Uh, one of the other uh, the other Hi, co-author. How are you, Jerry? Um, Accidental Paradise: The thirteen hundred thirteen thousand year history of Presque Isle. So let, maybe we could talk about this, and maybe Jerry, you could grab this one. Uh, when we're talking about the the actual geology, uh, it's a it's a sand spit, right? I mean, but. But was it glacially formed? What's what's the real background here? Jerry, you hear that one or no? I'll I'll jump grab, in. And grab, grab, there you go. Go ahead. Uh, and, and Jerry can. I'll let I'll let Dave it. take I'll let Dave take I'll let Dave take that one. Okay. Well, the the Great Lakes and Lake Erie were formed by the Wisconsin Glacier that came and went thirteen thousand years ago or so. And since Lake Erie is the only one of the Great Lakes that or, that's oriented in exactly the same position as the prevailing wind, it runs from southwest to northeast. Sure. Uh, and a ton of, of, of sand was dropped here by the glacier. The glacier picked stuff up, ground it into sand, and dropped it essentially on both sides of the lake. Uh, that uh, we're the only lake that's likely to be able to have sand spits. So Presque Isle is a sand spit. And sand spits are fragile and delicate. There are four, maybe five, depending upon how you define them on Lake Erie. And uh, Presque Isle is the only one which is a state park. It's not the largest one. The largest one is immediately across the lake from us, Long Point. Yeah, and really Long Point, uh, I mean, I've never really been on it, but it doesn't seem like you can do a whole lot. There's a lot of, you know, unaccessible places other than maybe on a kayak or something like that. It's not like you can drive to the very tip there, you know. You, you cannot. It's a wilderness and people are pro prohibited from going there. There's a provincial park at the base, but uh, people can't go beyond that unless they have a reason to be going beyond that. Interesting. So we've got these sand spits uh, formed by the glaciers. Uh, and my understanding is that where the peninsula is now isn't necessarily where it was, what, even 200 years ago or the time of uh, of the French and Indian War, which is kind of like our modern uh, civilization, right? Well, it was pretty much where it's always been. Uh, the, the, the notion that it's like a slinky toy, that it's been moving down the lakeshore is not correct. Really? It's, okay, it's that's, sort that's of, an urban it's legend. It's sort of always been kind of where it is. It may have been as much as 14, 15 miles to the uh, west of where it is now at one point, and it's growing. And Jerry has a perspective on that. He's, he's been watching it grow since he was a kid. Talk about that, Jerry. Joel, I grew up on, I grew up on Lighthouse Street, which is uh, outside, outside the lakeside of the, the bay. And uh, as a kid, uh, you could go up to the top of uh, Lighthouse Street and look out over the Presque Isle, and it was pretty much even with uh, what would be about Dunn Boulevard uh, back then. But since then, it's I would guess it's probably grown about uh, at least a mile uh, since wow. I was a kid. It's had 70 wow. years. You're talking about and like Beach 11 or Gold Point? Like what parts of it? 
Well, if you stop and think what, what uh, Thompson's Bay uh, was, was an inlet uh, and it was wide open, it was pretty much the end of the peninsula was there. Yeah. And then by the time now, it's, it's, it's almost it's nothing but a pond now. It's all enclosed except for a very small uh, uh, stream that goes in and out of it. So it, it, it has grown. Uh, a lot and just in our lifetime i'm interested I'm in, go, go ahead i was gonna say i'm interested in in understanding if kind of what the army corps has done which is to save our beaches and what have you with the you know with the rocks and the before that the jetties and and all this sand replenishment but all these artificial interventions are they causing a problem in the long term for the peninsula well, probably they're saving it from being washed away. Okay. If you if you go back to watch some of the stuff that the French did, uh, one of the fun things they did was to measure the length of Presque Isle. And of course, if you're capable of translating for metric, uh, as the, the scientific community would be able to do, it was just about five miles when the French were here. And it's, in ex it's, it's well in excess of seven miles now. It's probably grown pretty much a mile since Jerry's been watching it. That that is remarkable. I, I did not know that. So, um, alrighty. So, what about uh, people living? Uh, you did, did the Erie's Indians live on Presque Isle? Uh, was it ever? Uh, you know, was there ever a colony or a little village on the beach? No, the Indians were afraid of the lake. They stayed well away from it. The Erie's Indians were spread from Dunkirk to Ashtabula, probably twenty-five uh, stockaded villages. There were maybe 30,000 of them at peak. And uh, they only went to the lake episodically for fishing. They didn't use it for transportation. No one lived out there. Interesting. Other than, of course, Joe Roots and, and some of the mm. some of the stories, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, uh, you know, what was it like in the 1800s? I mean, you had this this village that kind of was growing uh, steadily uh, across the bay there, but uh, what was its function? Well, back then, Joel, it was an island. Uh, at about 18, what was it, Dave? About 1829, 30, 1830s, uh, it actually lost the neck of the peninsula, got washed away, and it stayed an island for well over 40, 50 years. Wow. And they made several, in fact, there was some talk, and I have a a Corps of Engineers drawing that was made in 1835 that shows they actually proposed a channel uh, through the west side of the peninsula that would break waters and channels that bring boats in and out on the westward side of it. They didn't manage to get it closed till about the 18, late 1860s. And it stayed closed until about, was it Dave, 1909 or 10? It well, you have to buy. You have to buy the book to get the details. We have all the <laughs> okay, yeah. And yeah, don't give away all of your secrets. But I remember uh, in the what the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, Mario Bagnoni wanted to kind of drill a what a six foot uh, uh, hole, right? Like like the Mill Creek tube kind of thing to be able to make the bay clean. Remember when the bay was. Uh, uh, was not swimmable, and they said, "Well, let's just take the take the water from the lake and dump it into the bay." Not kind of the smartest thing to do, right? Well, it was a clever idea, my Mario. <laughs> okay, <laughs> very <laughs> very diplomatic, Doctor Dave. I appreciate that. All right, so we we are at the hundredth um, anniversary of Prescott State Park. It's the original 
State Park. And in fact, I have old roadmaps that say Pennsylvania State Park. That was what it was called at one point. It was, but there, that, that was the second Pennsylvania State Park. Oh, I didn't know that. In, okay. The first was in Valley Forge. Gotcha. And then they made that a national park then. No, there's still a state park in Valley Forge. Oh, okay. Interesting. Gotcha. And, and um, how, uh, what, what were some of the, you know, is there, is there a story of, uh, of uh, making it a state park and getting it to reserve for the citizens of Pennsylvania? Go ahead, Jer. No, Dave, you, you did that. I was old. Uh, Isidore. Uh, well, there, there was a local fellow by the name of Isidore Sobel. Uh, who's concerned that uh, if the un- uh, the illegal logging and other stuff that was going on in Presque Isle continued, that it would lose its root structure, wash away, and he was right about that, and then we wouldn't have the protected harbor. Uh, so he went to work to try to make it into a national park, but he was uh, rejected, and uh, then he dusted off his national park proposal and went to the state and uh, got permission to make it into a state park. Because before all that, there, like you said, there was logging going on, but there were also some crazy ideas. Uh, uh, and one that you talk about in the book is that uh, the the city fathers from Erie tried to either sell or give away Presque Isle to Andrew Carnegie to build a steel mill and bring jobs to Erie. I just can't even imagine that. Jerry can do this one better that than would me. Be hard. Oh. Go ahead, Jerry. Uh, he had looked at it, and he was brought here and, and checked it out. He, he wanted it very badly, except there was a problem. Uh, he had to deal with the Pennsylvania Railroad because by the time he was he was thinking about building a steel mill there, the Pennsylvania Railroad had pretty much been given almost all the waterfront property by the the uh, city of Erie. Uh, in order to encourage them to uh, bring railroad into Erie, uh, they gave them water lots for docks and, and moorings and, and anything they could use in their business. So uh, Pennsylvania Railroad did not want any more any more railroads here, and it was a lot easier for him. That's why he, he moved his railroad to Conneaut, and it's uh, it was called the uh, uh, Bessemer and Lake Erie Railroad. And... Uh, it was an operation. In fact, it still is an operation by the Canadian National Railroad right now. But the so let, let me, let me could st- never get uh, track rights. Let me stop you a second. So th- you're saying that we, e- even if we wouldn't have put a steel mill on the peninsula, we could have gotten the shipping from from the from the coal fields of Minnesota to Erie to be that direct line to Pittsburgh. And instead, it went to Conia. We did. What was no, it? No, the coal no, no, fields. No, no. Those were iron ore fields. Iron ore fields. I'm sorry. Iron ore fields. I, I, I'm getting. No, no. We we the pencil. That's why the, they didn't want the competition. The Pennsylvania Railroad already had a coal and iron ore docks here. They would ship coal up from the inner land of Pennsylvania and uh, bring in iron ore. Uh, that it was an operation from about 1849 all the way through to uh, around 1960. Uh, that was the Holland Street Dock, the, and also the Cascade Docks were the Erie and Pittsburgh Railroad, and uh, they operated until the Pennsylvania Railroad took them over around this into the Second World War. So, so it was everybody but Pennsylvania. It was everybody but Carnegie, or was Carnegie involved as well on yes. the docks? 
Which yeah. one was it? Was it Carnegie was or wasn't involved at all for, for Erie? Was, was not. We was had not. the doctor, they were, they were owned uh, by the railroad interests and we were just bringing in material and shipping it. And they were interested in making money doing the shipping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what, what Carnegie eventually figured out was it was easier to go to Conneaut where there was no competition yeah. and grab up, the, uh, grab up the iron ore. All he needed was the iron ore. Uh, so it was easy, easier for him to expand his existing steel mills than to build a new one. Sure. And it was way easier for him to get into Conneaut because there was no competition there. Yeah, it, it is remarkable. His railroad. Well, I was going to say, it's remarkable to see these strategic um, moves in the 1800s that, um, you know, may or may not have been beneficial for the Erie community. Again, obviously, uh, we, you know, and I know this is off subject, but we're so glad that uh, Matt Griswold had a buddy at Yale, you know, that was bringing GE to Erie. You know, I mean, that's where we benefited. But, it, it, you know, it all kind of comes into play here with the with the history of Presque Isle because the natural harbor really is is the, the key here, right? Absolutely. I would say so. Absolutely, yep. So, so, no, so the Bessemer did eventually, the Bessemer Railroad did come into Erie, but it never made it down to the waterfront. Uh, it used to, uh, it had track rights. It never, they never ran a line, but they traveled from uh, uh, what we call Girard Junction, which was down in uh, Cranesville. Okay. They separated Girard Junction, or I'm sorry, Conneaut Junction. Part of the, they could either go to Conneaut from there or they came to Erie. Well, they came to Erie, they came in underneath of New York Central Railroad and onto 12th Street. Uh, they operated on along 12th Street until about 1954. Jeez. Uh, they had a terminal that was located at uh, 12th and Peach. And he had a uh, freight house and he had a small uh, repair repair facility in Erie. We'll have uh, to do it, we'll have uh, to do a whole was, show on the railroads. I, I mean, this is this is fascinating stuff. I'm going to pivot here because we don't have a ton you, of whenever you <laughs> whatever whenever I want. You yeah. do that, let me know. I, that's my thing. All right, so uh, I want I want to go to something near and dear to Jerry and that and both of you actually, Dr. Dave as well. But this this concept of Erie and Presque Isle and it, of, of of our commercial fishing uh, background. Do you talk about that in the book at all? Yeah, just, oh yeah, just that's, a little that's bit. near and dear to Dave and I. In fact, you can buy a whole book about it if you buy Fortune and Fury. We we published that what five years ago, Dave? A little bit longer, maybe. I don't know, but that tells the whole story. No, uh, there was at Prescott did have some commercial operations. Uh, they had uh, processing plants for sturgeon. Uh, caviar, fact, right? Local, did we have a caviar plant? Well, you know, there were there was a they hated that fish. The original. Uh, uh, fishermen who were what they called pound net fishermen, they would put stakes in the water and string fishes on uh, fish nets on the on the stakes that they drove into the water. And uh, these sturgeon would get in there and they were so big, I mean, they were 100, 100 and some pounds, they'd get in and tear the nets up. Wow. And they would just kill them and throw them on a, throw them on a beach uh, in an area <laughs> called, we call stinkhole today. And uh, the carcasses would just rot. Well, then they discovered there was a lot of money in the caviar and a lot of money in the meat. Their smoked meat is delicious. They learned how to smoke it. And then they started using the bladders for isoglass for uh, uh, carriages and stuff like that. So it became a big market. Initially, the commercial industry was focused uh, primarily on catching whitefish. Interesting. And from there, it spread to, uh, to Cisco or Lake Herring. And in the meantime, they were getting uh, occasional uh, sturgeon in. 
Did we have much of a canning um, operation as far as like a, a national uh, a national distribution? We, we had one national company that I can think of. It was Booth Fisheries. In fact, they're still in business in some parts of the world. Uh, they had an operation here, but I don't think they, they didn't do any canning. They used to catch the fish, process them, and ship it out. All right, that's out on the, that's out on the west coast, Cannery yeah. Road. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, and I've been I've been to Monterey, you know, and that there whole you thing. Go. Um, we, we had four, fourteen different fish houses that operated out of Erie over the years. Let's talk about uh, the more modern times. Uh, how is the how is 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 Presque Isle safe right now? Uh, or, or should we be concerned environmentally, Doctor Dave? Concerned. Yeah, I think we should be concerned. I'm afraid that uh, these high waters. I, I'm thankful I noticed today that the the ice dunes are starting to form around the outer edge of Presque Isle. Because uh, it, if we get another bad year, they I don't think they can possibly keep up with. I noticed uh, in a ride the other day that. Uh, uh, the lake is awful close uh, to what we used to call Stone Jetty Beach. It's almost up to the road hidden behind the dunes. Yeah. So there is a big chance, unless that lake level drops, that this is going to be a real problem. I uh, noticed that that brand new uh, road that they built around Beach 7 is all caved in. I mean, we just had a lot of erosion that way. Um, I mean, yeah, well, it, that was yeah, that was supposed to be a bike path. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, it was supposed to be. Yeah, it looks. Yeah, that tore it got tore up real bad next year. That whole area between six, seven, and eight, uh, just past eight, to stone the old stone jetty beach is, just took a terrible beating last year. Doctor Doctor Dave, what about uh, invasive species and some of the other things that we've concerned ourselves about? You know, when it comes to the bay and and uh, Presque Isle itself. Well, I, they, they turned out to not to be so horrible as we'd originally imagined. Uh, one of the biggest problems we're worried about these days is the invasive algae blooms. Uh, but uh, for all the concerns we had about zebra mussels, they seem to uh, be now being controlled by the gobies, which eat them. And the gobies are one of the primary food sources for perch. Uh, so whether you're thinking you want to eat gobies or not, if you're uh, eating actually uh, uh, commercially caught perch, uh, which are only being caught primarily in Canada. They catch the most. Uh, they're looking at an average of like a little more than 1.5 gobies per fish stomach when they do that analysis. And that's not the right way, of course, to control that stuff. I'd say from Jerry's perspective that the biggest concern is the high water. Yeah, yeah. And 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 again, hopefully this is more of a short-term uh, it, a situation as opposed to a long-term climate change uh, kind of thing. Well, I, well, I, I, I don't. We can't let you get away with saying that because uh, this is this has gone beyond short term. Okay. If we were looking at the regular thirty or thirty-one year high high low water cycle, right, we would have peaked out about two and a half years ago. But we've been going up. So the question is, where does it go from here? Does it go down or does it stay the same? And most of the universities that have been looking at this are arguing that it's likely to stay about the same for a while. Well, that's 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 tragic. A lot of lot of um, lot of personal connection with p folks, not only from Erie and the region, but literally in the tri-state area, Pittsburgh or whatever, with this. Uh, with this particular piece of land, these seven miles of beaches, uh, again, uh, uh, visceral connection, wouldn't you say? I mean, does it does it get emotion emotional for you guys to think about this uh, particular accidental paradise? 
Go, Jer. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've saw, we watched it grow in popularity. We watched it uh, suffer through all its uh, tribulations between uh, erosion and storms and, and uh, everything else. Uh, I always said that probably the best thing that happened to this planet is take all the people off of it. And it would probably recover very nicely, but that's, be <laughs> that's beside the point. Uh, uh, my concern, one of my big concerns about Prescott is, is, uh, is not that it's, uh, I, I can't say it's not just being overused, but I don't think it's being respected like it should. Right. I, I really, I notice that people are still throwing litter out the windows and, and, uh, um, there's a tendency that there's little groups like, you know, being active in the Sons of Lake Erie, we're out there when we're not in a COVID, right. we're probably out there once a week with, with groups of kids. And uh, it's really cool to see how many people are really taking use of it. When this COVID started, my wife and I was going out there at least three to four, four days a week. And to see people walking around and it's becoming, only thing I worry about is that it's going to be taken for granted. And, uh, and and that's certainly think, something uh, we, we, we can't do. I mean, yeah. uh, but uh, again, it's been one of those refuges from uh, being isolated and locked up. I mean, again, there's there's oh, there's, there's no better there's no better way to cope uh, cope with the with the pandemic than to get some fresh air and get a good walk in. Uh, my favorite my favorite run is from the Stull Interpretive Center out to like like you say Beach Six, Beach Seven. Do that. You know, do that hour loop, and you know, you just get a good walk. And I thank you guys. I did that yesterday. Did you really? Yeah. The same walk. I, I I appreciate you guys so much, and I, I'm sure there's a ton of interest in this book. Uh, the folks from the Jefferson Educational Society were participated with this, and it is available at Trek, and I, I would imagine at uh, on Amazon, right? You can get it online. It has its own website. It's called accidentalparadise.com. I think it's .com. Okay, right. I think, yeah, I'm right That's there. Thank you guys so much, Dr. David Frew and Jerry Scripsack. You've been listening to The Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast from TalkErie.com. Subscribe to our show on your favorite podcatcher and get involved by emailing joel at TalkErie.com. <laughs>